The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. This morning, we get to start a new section in the Gospel of John. Broadly speaking, it's the last section that we're going to be at in the Gospel of John because we are nearing the end of Jesus' ministry. And as I made reference to last week, in the end of the Gospel of John, and the end of Jesus' ministry, John focuses very tightly on um, Jesus' interaction with those closest to him. He's left, if you will, the, the, the larger public ministry that we got to look at from really uh, chapter 2 and beyond. But now we're going to see his private, his intimate moments with his friends, with his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And this morning we get to start that new section, we get to start this new section by highlighting one of the most beautiful miracles that Jesus has done, or that Jesus has, that he ever did. And this, this miracle that we get to look at, the death and the resurrection of Lazarus, is one that only John in his gospel highlights. It's not found in the synoptics. And this is a uh, fascinating uh, miracle for a couple of reasons, but this is also a notable miracle because this one particular event has caused and has created a lot of stir among the biblical critics. It's created a lot of fodder for people to say, ah, I know I'm not so sure the Bible is real. I'm not so sure the Bible is true. I'm not so sure that Jesus is actually who he says he is because raising somebody from the grave after they've spent four days in the grave, as, as we will look at, is impossible. And while I'm not going to take the time to um, make a defense for this miracle, I do want to acknowledge how beautiful a capstone it is on all that we have seen thus far in the gospel. This miracle contains the fifth I am statement that we will look at. If you can think back to the other I am statements that we have seen thus far, this is something that is particular to John's gospel where he gets down to describing who Jesus is. And we saw the first I am statement in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. We saw the second I am statement in John 8. I am the light of the world. We saw the third I am statement in John 10. I am the door of the sheep. We saw the fourth statement in John 10 as well. I am the good shepherd. And here in John 11, it's not the last, but we're going to see the, the, it's the perfect culmination of all that we've seen before. He's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. This story follows perfectly uh, from the demands that we saw at the end of John 10. Just think back to what we looked at last week and the demands from the Jews in the Feast of the Benediction. What did they say? He goes, Jesus, tell us plainly who you are. Are you, in fact, the Messiah or are you not? Stop all of the charades, stop all of the games, just tell us. And how did Jesus respond? I told you. I've been telling you. I've been telling you my words. I've been telling you my deeds. I've been telling you my actions. I've been telling you in my miracles that I am, in fact, the Messiah. Well, in John 11... We are going to see a very clear moment when all doubt is removed, when, when we can say without a doubt, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Messiah. And even down to Jesus' disciples, there's a change in tone with Jesus' disciples because we see something happen for the last time with Jesus' disciples in John 11, and it's this. For the last time, they call him rabbi. Now, rabbi 
is a term of honor, rabbi meaning teacher, rabbi understanding that you're somebody that you're a mentor of mine, I'm following after you. We see for the very last time in John 8, he goes, the disciples said to him, rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you and are you going to go there again? But for the last time they call him rabbi and I think it's this, at the end of this event, they're going to realize that while he is their teacher, while he, it is appropriate to call them his mentor, while they look to him in honor, he, calling him rabbi is diminishing his authority because he's not like all other mere rabbis, teachers, mentors. He's the son of God. So I, I think in this scene with the death and the resurrection of, of Lazarus, the, the disciples, if there was any doubt in their mind about who is this guy that we've been following for the last two years, they're going to step back and go, oh, my friend is different than any other friend that I've ever interacted with. And this story really is a story between friends. This is uh, a, a very intimate story between, if it's appropriate to say, it's loved ones. Because there is a love and a connection here between these two parties, between Jesus and Lazarus and his sisters, that we haven't seen yet in the gospel. And so, uh, as we enter into this, it's, we're going to take two weeks to get through this story. This is, this is Jesus dealing with his friends. You know, we say that Jesus is, is a friend of sinners, and, and, and we, we, call, we say that Jesus is friendly towards people, but we get to really see what that means with this story. Now, I just want to pick up on, on the body of things and, and, and what we've seen thus far. At the end of chapter 10, we saw Jesus fleeing from Jerusalem. And he was fleeing from Jerusalem because after all that the crowds had said, after all of the, inter, the, the interaction that Jesus had had with the crowds, they wanted to pick up stones to stone him. And so we see in the very last, verse that, or last verses, he fled across the Jordan so that he would not be arrested, so that he would not be stoned. And that's important for a couple of reasons. Because then when we pick up on chapter 11, what we see is that Jesus is being called to go back to that area. You see, Bethany, this town that is, that, uh, is, is brought up for the first time in this gospel. This is verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and his, and his sister Martha, is two miles from Jerusalem. So Jesus, as this scene unfolds, is being asked to go back, if you will, to the uh, lion's den, to where people are angry with him, to where people are, are trying to arrest him. And he is within their, their, their reach there, because it's just simple two miles. You can walk that very easily in a day. But this story, as we jump into it, you might be surprised at who the primary focus is on. It's known for the death of Lazarus and his resurrection. But the interaction that stands out the most is not with Lazarus necessarily, or I should say the conversations that stand out the most is not with Lazarus. He's dead in a grave somewhere. The interaction that we see is actually with his sisters. I mean, just, just look at, at how it starts. Certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, from the village of Mary and his sisters. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. This is actually foreshadowing a story that he's going to, to tell us in John 10. But we, we've interacted with these ladies before. We've seen them highlighted in Luke 10. If you will turn, turn there, just hear about the interaction that Mary and Martha have with Jesus in Luke 10, 10, 38 through 42. And we're going to see how these ladies have had a change of mind. These ladies have come to see Jesus for who he truly is. This is what it says in Luke 10, 38 through 42. 
Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, Bethany, though Luke doesn't say it's Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha having this very notable individual in her house, this teacher of the law, this rabbi, the person who's creating the stir, thinking, oh, I'm in a place of honor that he's willing to come and eat in my house. He's going to sit at my table. I get to serve him, is frustrated with her sister because she's up doing the regular hostess roles. I mean, imagine if somebody notable came over to your house and there's an expectation of, would you like something to drink? Would you like something to eat? Can I take your coat? Is there anything I can do for you here? And Mary, her sister, who's also a, a part of this hosting thing. Jesus comes in and sits down and Mary just sits at his feet and listens. And Martha's like, excuse me, I have a lot of people to serve here. I don't want to break social norms here. I'm trying to serve these these people around. Jesus, can you tell Mary to help me? Because clearly she's not doing what she is socially uh, inclined to do. What does Jesus say? Uh, Martha, Jesus, or Mary gets it. Mary is actually Uh, looking at. Mary is worshiping. Mary understands where she needs to be here. Who cares about the uh, food and the drink and the hosting and all of that? You have Jesus in your presence. Here's the thing. We get to see in this story this contrast between the way that the Jews saw Jesus and the way that these ladies saw Jesus. Because we're going to see from this, these ladies' testimony that they can easily declare what the Jews could not. They could easily see what the Jews could not. The juxtaposition that we have here is that the Jews were saying, tell us plainly whether you're the Christ. And Mary and Martha understand pl- plainly that Jesus is Lord. You can hear that in their interaction with Jesus. It says in verse 3, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Their declaration here to Jesus is one of intimacy and urgency. This statement, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This intimacy is, Lord, the person that you have a relationship with, the person that you know, you've sat in our house, you have eaten our food, you know us, we love you, we have a relationship together. He is ill. But it's kind of tricky to translate this Greek sentence into English because there's a a word here, a statement here that doesn't actually translate well into a word because it's given here for emphasis. There's an imperative. The imperative is ida, and it's from the the verb adon, which means to look or to see. And it's placed here in in, in this verse simply to create the emphasis of things. I mean, this is like the exclamation mark. If if you were to text this, it would be in all caps. If you were to put in some emojicon, you'd be like, you need to listen to this. I mean, there's this weight here to this statement where it's like, Lord, the person whom you love is ill. You have to hear this. I mean, this is a message that's being communicated. They're sending them out to some messengers like, go find Jesus. He needs to hear about this. 
Imagine how this sickness went with Lazarus. We don't know what he was sick from. But imagine how this escalated. Mary and Martha find out that Lazarus has a cold. Oh, hey, you should take some vitamin C. You should drink some water. Why don't you lay down and take a nap? And that cold then progresses to something far worse. And then they turn to their other medicines that they have. Oh, maybe you should go see a doctor. Maybe you should take something else. Maybe we should take something else out of your diet. What's going on? And then that progresses even more to the point where all of their remedies, all of their earthly remedies, all of the possibilities, I mean, they've taken all the drugs that the cabinet has. They've gone to see all the doctors that they could possibly do. And he's just getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, Mary and Martha, knowing that their only hope for Lazarus, go Find Jesus. They know he's across the, the Jordan. They, I'm sure they knew how he left Jerusalem this last time. They knew the weight. They knew this ask. I need you to come here. And I know this is dangerous territory. I know this is only two miles from the very place that tried to stone you just weeks prior. But we need you because the only person who can help my brother right now is you. That's what's in this statement. Lord, he whom you love is ill. One commentator said this about this section. The entire gospel has depicted the love that God has in in a general way for the world, like John 3, 16, for God to love the world. But in this moment, and for the first time in the gospel, an individual is described as being loved by God, intimately, personally. The narrative is carefully revealing to the reader that the sickness of Lazarus is only part of the conflict of the periscope of the scene. For the conflict now also includes the love of God and the nature of its expression. We, we get to see how God treats those whom he loves. And Jesus received the message, verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This This statement echoes back to the blind man. That interaction that the disciples had with Jesus as they're walking by and there's this no-name blind guy that's been sitting next to this gate for who knows how long. And and his disciples go, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus goes, no, it wasn't for either of those. It was so that the glory of God might be revealed in him. And what did he do? He walked up, he put mud on his eyes, and here's this blind, this blind man, this no-name blind guy, could see. Why? So that the Jerusalem, so that the crowds could see, hey, I've been saying I'm the light of the world. Let me prove that to you. Well, here, in the exact same manner, Jesus goes, yeah, I know that there's this illness. Mary and Martha, I, I know that you're concerned. I know that you're anxious. I know that you're wondering, how is this going to work out? But all of this has taken place so that God might be glorified. It's such an interesting statement, though, to to consider, so that God might be glorified. Because we throw around that statement maybe too often and definitely with some insensitivity. Like, in the most painful of moments, I see Christians, well-meaning Christians, start quoting verses like Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and, And at times we can receive that and go, I hear that but that's a jerk thing to say right now. 
I just cut my leg off or I just went through this painful moment. You're like, yeah, I get that, but I don't see that right now. I don't see God's glory in it right now. What I see is the darkness, is the despair, is the pain. And, but when Jesus says it's for the glory of God, he is, he is both saying that as a truthful statement, but he also comes back around and he states it in a truth, but he also has the appropriate emotions behind it. Because in this passage, we have, I think, the Awana kids' favorite verse. Because they get the easiest Bible memory points for the shortest verse in the entire Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35. Jesus wept. He starts this by saying, yeah, this illness doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God. And even before Lazarus, he raises Lazarus from the grave. He's going to weep with them because he sees the pain and the anguish that Mary and Martha and the crowds are going through. So Jesus can say it's for God's glory, and at the same time, he can enter into our misery, into our despair, into our sorrow, and weep with us. But now I'm getting into next week's sermon because we're not going to get that far in this passage. So that's the setup. That's what's going on. That's the emotion here. Now, I know that we read the passage before. I know that you know this story well. You have a Bible in front of you. But let me just ask you a question. If you received the news, or if you heard that Jesus received the news, that his friend whom he loves dearly is, is ill, is going to die, and he even says that, you know, he, he receives it and he hears it and he goes, it's not for the glory of God, but so that God might be glorified through it. If you think that Jesus received that, how would you think that Jesus would respond? Like any normal, reasonable response. You think he said, oh, well, we should go. I mean, even from the fact of like, well, my friend is in trouble. My, my, my friend is in trouble not only because he's sick, but my friends are in trouble because the anxiety, the dread that they're living in is what's going to happen with this sickness. I should go and I should relieve them of this dread and misery. But what does Jesus do? He stays for two days. The juxtaposition that's, that's hard to put together here in this is in verse 5 he says, now, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and his sister, and Lazarus. And then verse 6 says, uh, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was at. You're like, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. Why did he stay? Well, the commentators like to offer their answers for it, their possibilities. Probably the one that I would agree with the most is he stayed for two days longer because he knew what was coming. He knew there'd be a resurrection, but if he got there too soon, people would begin to doubt whether Lazarus was dead at all. Maybe he just came in and came in and he um, uh, revived his consciousness, but didn't revive his heart. But I think above all the possibilities, what we see in this in this miracle and what we see elsewhere is this: that God's perfect way is not always or very often our way of doing things. God's perfect way is always the perfect way. So what one commentator said this week, I actually put this out on social media. This is a guy by the name of Clink says this. If God is intentional with the events of sickness and death, he can also be intentional with his response to such events. The mode in which God works, even if different than expected, must not be attributed to his incompetence or insensitivity, but as befitting his greater purpose even if unseen. I, I, I just think we need to sit in this thought for a minute before we move on. We would never have orchestrated this 
story in this way. We would hear that Lazarus is sick, and if we had the power to heal him, we would go immediately. We would make haste. We wouldn't sit back for two days. Again, imagine Martha and Mary sitting in their homes wondering what's going to happen. Jesus knows, well, he's already died. We're going to get to that. His disciples are wondering what's going on. So, but you would think, well, I, I, I sh if I have the power to save this, I shouldn't wait any longer. But Jesus' timing is different. And the answer to Jesus' timing is it might be different than ours, but it's also the perfect timing. And so we can boldly state Romans 8, 28, God works, works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that is true for Lazarus, and that is true for you. I know there's moments when you go, God, can you finally just get here? Can you not wait two days? We can say, Lord, the one whom you love is in trouble. Help me. And, and, and we're wondering, is he going to be faithful to help us? Well, the answer to that is yes. But oftentimes the timing or the process or the way that he's going to help us is a bit unexpected. But it's unexpected to us, but it's the perfect way for him. So we continue. After two days, Jesus finally looks at his disciples and says, okay, let's go. Verse 7 says this, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judah again. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are, are, are you going there again? And Jesus answered, there are not 12 hours in the day. If anyone works in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And if anyone walks in darkness, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I will go to awaken him. His disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. His disciples were understandably worried about getting this close to Jerusalem. They were like, we just got out of there by the skin of our teeth before Jesus. Why are you going to go back into the mouth of the lion's den? They are very clear. Their intentions have been made. They want to stone you. They want to kill you. They want to imprison you. Why are we going to go there again? And what's Jesus' answer? It can seem this odd statement about 12 hours in the day and you got to work in the daytime, you got to work in the nighttime, but it's simply this. Jesus goes, I came here for a purpose. And I have to do that purpose when it's the timing of that purpose. This is an agrarian culture and one where they had no electricity. So they understood you got to be in the field when it's light out and you're not in the field when it's dark. Why? Because when it's light, you can do your work. And when it's dark, it's not the time to do work. It's the time to go home because it, you're going to stumble around. What Jesus is saying is, it's daytime, guys. It's time to go to work. I know that you're afraid to go that close to Jerusalem. I know that you don't want to do that. But in one sense, you don't have any choice. It's time to do the work of my ministry. And so look at how his disciples... Uh, try to talk him out of it. You know, Jesus said, the Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he, he will recover. It's almost in one sense of like, if he's fallen asleep, you know, he'll, he'll wake up again. You don't have to go. You don't have to risk life and limb to go there. But now Jesus speaks clearly in verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken about his death, for they thought that he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. And so Jesus said plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, so let us go. I mean, 
these disciples now, probably in one sense, are like, okay, we're going to go try to rescue a dead guy? It doesn't make any sense. We're going to go to the mouth of the lions then to die for the dead guy? That makes even less sense. And then we see one of his disciples that frankly gets a bad rap in Scripture speak up and speak on behalf of, on behalf of the twelve. And it's Thomas. And when we normally think of Thomas, we think of what? Doubting Thomas. Thomas here wasn't doubting. Thomas here had faith. Not that, I don't think he necessarily knew that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the grave, but he's like, well, I'm going to go with Jesus because he's the safest place. So in 16, so Thomas called, called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. I mean, it's very clear. Okay, Jesus, we're going to go. It's not going to be good, but we'll die with you because the safest place in this world is with you. As we move on with this story, we, we get to see moments of, of, of power and faith. The power part is Jesus, obviously. The power part is Jesus saying, no, Lazarus has died and I go there for your sake so that you may believe, so that I can raise him from the grave. That's the power part. But there's also the faith part. And the faith part comes from his disciples with Thomas, but the faith part also comes from Mary and Martha. Because as we continue in this story, we see and we get to, to, to learn from the faith of Mary and Martha. And so I want to just read the next section of verses as we continue in this story. And we get to look at the faith of Mary and Martha. And frankly, we get to learn from the faith of Mary and Martha. It says this in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It has the exact same emphasis as their statement in verse 3. Lord, he whom you love still sends. It's this exclamation mark. It's all caps. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Just like we saw in the first three verses, this new section once again begins by focusing in on Lazarus' sisters because they really get to be the um, chief illustration of faith in this story. And once again, we see a contrast between Mary and Martha and how they handle an interaction with Jesus. Luke 10, 
We saw that Jesus came into their home and Martha, wanting to um, keep up the, the, the social standards, made sure that she was a good host. Everyone had something to eat. Everyone had something to drink. She was, she was caring about her business. But Mary, understanding the weight of who Jesus is, sat at Jesus' feet. And what did Martha say? Lord, make my sister serve like she's supposed to, because that's what people expect from her. Well, in this story, we get to see these sisters uh, handle those social expectations with Jesus. But what we get to see is that I think Martha learned, if you will, the lesson about who Jesus is. In the um, culture of the day when somebody died, the family would sit in their home and there would be this expectation that their neighbors and their friends and their community from close and far and wide would come and they would pay their respects to the family. They would enter into the morning to the mourner's house and say, I'm so sorry that this has happened in your life. And the expectation is that you would sit there in your grief and allow people to come in and, and console you. Well, when rumors spread that Jesus was returning to Bethany, when, when it reached Martha's ears that Jesus was close by, she broke all social norms. She said, who cares about you people? The only person that I want to be comforted by, the only person that I want to talk to right now is Jesus. And she got up. I'm sure offending the line of people out the door who are like, wait a second, I've journeyed here too. Aren't you going to talk to me? And she, I can imagine her running to Jesus and coming to her and coming to him and saying, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, Martha's response is a reflection of her devotion to Jesus. Here's, here's what one commentator says, that although it would have been expected according to the religious customs for Martha to remain in her home and let Jesus come to her and express sympathy, she paid him greater respect by going out and greeting him, even at the cost of offending those who had already come to her and her sister. I mean, you can see her love and her trust and her devotion to Jesus. It's undeniable here. Lord, if you would have been here, the worst would not have happened. But then you can even continue to hear her faith, even after the worst had happened. And she could say, but, but, but Lord, I, I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. I mean, it's this resolution, even in her deepest despair of, I hate what's happened, but I'm going to keep trusting you. How does Jesus respond? Your brother will rise again. You know, out of Martha's faithful statement, we get to hear the most beautiful words that Jesus has offered, in my opinion, up to this point. Because when he says, your brother will rise again, we, we even still hear Martha go, I, I know. I know that he will. See, in this time period, the, the Jews believe that in the last times, in the end, when all things are made new, that there would be this resurrection from the grave, that, that we would once again be ushered back to heaven and have this right relationship with God. But she thought that was something that was far off. Jesus goes, no, I'm not looking at something far off. I'm looking at something that's here. He goes, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. He is stating that he is the hope that we all desperately need and assuredly have by faith. But this statement has has some subtlety and yet very significant wording in it. Jesus doesn't say, I will provide the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am, that he is the resurrection and the life. Again, this future hope that the, Jew, that the Jews trusted in saying, something is coming that will provide this resurrection and the life. What, Mar- what Martha gets to hear is, I'm that thing you've been waiting for. I'm the thing that's going to give you the resurrection and the life. I'm the thing that's going to give you the hope. I'm the thing that you desperately need and that I will give you by faith. Think for a moment about all of the problems that the world is trying to fix at the moment. It's not lost on me that everyone has their hobby horse. Everyone has their thing. If we can just fix blank, our world will be a better place. If we can just have an answer to this question, or if we can just have a solution to this problem, then our world will be safer for the next generation. I, I, I'm, it's not, not lost on me that in this election time, it's, it's conversations like climate change and electric cars and world politics and all this stuff is being swirled around and we all have an answer to it. And I'm, I'm not criticizing any of the particular answers to that, but the underlying assumption with all of those conversations is if we can just get this thing then we'll be okay. But what Jesus says is that all the answers to our problems isn't found in that stuff, isn't found in the future um, uh, uh, revelation and, 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 and that stuff actually working in the future. No, where it's found is in Jesus now. I am the resurrection and the life that he is what we so desperately need. So instead of looking to a future hope to pan out, Martha and us get to look at a living Christ for our current and future hope. Jesus leaves Martha with a question. And it's a beautiful question. It's a simple question. And I think it's a question among friends. Jesus said, 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I think that's the heart here. Do you believe this? Like, I'm I'm sure there's tears. Obviously, there's emotion. She probably hasn't slept in who knows how long. She's had the worst week of her life, the worst month of her life. We don't know how long Lazarus has been sick. I mean, she's at that spot that she never saw coming. And Jesus goes, no, do you believe this? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that what you need and what your brother needs, I can give you? This question has a very different tone than anything we've seen thus far in the gospel. This question has a very different tone, especially from last week in John 10, where the Jews are pounding down Jesus' door. Tell us plainly. He goes, I told you. No, but this, this, I think this is a question between friends. Do you believe that I in the resurrection and the life, that I am the hope that you need, that I am the answer to your problems and to the world's problems. And out of this sweet question, this simple question, we get to see her faith shine forth. 
she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you came into this world to make all things new. That declaration that she can so, frankly, easily say even in her despair is a beautiful thing. I haven't seen this often, but I've had the privilege of experiencing it once or twice. Of sitting with a person in a moment of pain, in a moment of loss, of death, and in tears, and through tears, hearing the anguish of it's not supposed to be this way. And even in that misery, hearing the declaration about, but I believe the Lord is good. That should be how we approach the gospel and people. That should be as the gospel is proclaimed from us is that it should not be this way. We hate that there's this sin. We, we hate that there's this brokenness. We hate that our life looks this way. We hate the fact that we've got to go to Lazarus' grave. Jesus hates the fact that I think this is why, now I'm just preaching next week's sermon. This is why he weeps because he looks at the grave and he goes, that shouldn't be there. And yet in that moment he can go, but I know that I've been sent here. That the person who was God took on, or who is God, was with God, took on flesh became a man, lived the perfect life, died the sufficient death for us so that he could look at the grave, he could look at the crap that happens in our life and go, I'm the resurrection and the life for that. We're going to pause the story for the morning because I'm just going to, next week is, as we finish up the story, it's, it, it's a beautiful scene. I'm going to come back to the resurrection and the life. We're going to talk about that more in detail, but here, here's just what I want to leave you with. If I asked you the question this morning, do you believe? What would you say? And it might be this morning you go, of course, yes, obviously I'm here in church. Yeah, my life was great. I've got full, you know, I've got a full belly. I've got a full bank account. I've got all this stuff. It's all working out well. Of course I believe. What if I asked you that question in the moment where Martha was asked that question? Do you believe? Do you believe so much that you'd risk offending your fellow humans and neighbors and friends and run to Jesus? Like Martha believed. Do you believe that at the end of your rope, when you, when you go through it all, that you would say, Lord, he whom you love, his children, is ill, do something. Do you, do you believe like Martha believed and goes, I know that you will. I, I, I know that you believe that you're the resurrection and, and the life. Here's the thing, you could hear that and you could say, oh my goodness, I have to believe to that extent. I have to be brought to that moment of, of despair. My, my faith has to be judged like Martha's faith was judged. And, and, and the answer to that is no. Because even when we are faithless, he is faithful. But here's what we do have to believe. And we're going to get to this in the gospel. Jesus is the only way and truth and life. No one can come to the Father but through him. 
if you're here this morning and, and I just feel compelled to do this, if, if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in him, if you're here this morning and ask, do you believe? And, 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 your, and your answer to that would be, no, I don't. I'm suspect. I'm still holding out. I understand. I get that. I get it because we've been ingrained to look at and to judge things based upon their cause and effect. We've, we've been, uh, you know, we're going to look and say, well, let's see if this works out and, and I'll put a little bit of faith in one thing and a little bit of faith in another and hopefully at the end it all pans out and I'll, uh, you know, and I'll be safe. But the belief here that we have in Christ is all or nothing. It's to say that it's either Christ or something else. But what Christ declares and what's true today is that he is the only resurrection and the only life. As we turn towards communion this morning, obviously death is a big part of this, the death of Lazarus. And you come to Lazarus' death, like Mary and Martha, and we've come to all, all, the death that we've had to deal with in our life, and we can, we can despair. And yet we come to this table and we also deal with death. We deal with the death of our Savior. But this is not a table of despair. This is a table of hope because it's from his death and his life and his burial and, oh yeah, his resurrection that we can sit here today and we can have hope. And we can say all things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because Christ came and did what we could not do but what we desperately needed. Again, if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe... Uh, this, is, this is new for you. I would ask that you let these elements pass you by that we're about to pass out because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take these elements to save ourselves. We take these elements so that we can appropriately remember where our salvation comes from, not our own hands, but from Christ. But if you are here and you are a believer, a child of God, Take this in joy, knowing that the hope that you have is not found by the works of your own hands, but it's found by his perfect life. Let's pray. We can take this together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that in, our dis- in, in the brokenness of our life, it does not lead us to despair. It leads us to hope and joy with the knowledge that you are the resurrection and the life that we desperately need. But I pray if there's anyone in this room or anyone listening live stream or, or even after the fact listening audio recording that hears this and, and questions, do I know you? Questions whether they've actually believed in you, whether they believe that you are the son of God, whether the, you believe that you're the resurrection and the life. Lord, open their eyes. Open their eyes to the gift of the gospel. Open their eyes to the knowledge that the only hope that they have in life and death is you. And open their eyes to the beautiful reality that you offer that gift indiscriminately. That you expect that we'll be broken. That you expect that we have nothing to offer. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Lord, just work in our hearts now. In your son's name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.